My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. COVID-19 has changed everyone's life, and we've talked about how it's changed them. For seniors, cut off from children and grandchildren. For kids, pulled out of school or scared of being infected in the classroom. For parents, the same worry. For partners, married or not, struggling with the impact of stress on their relationship while living closer together than they'd ever imagined. Every part of the traditional family unit has been impacted. But what about those of us who live outside a traditional family unit, who have been sharing close quarters for most of this year with someone who is neither a lover nor a family member of any relation? What has COVID-19 done to the roommate relationship? It's a question that's worth asking because the percentage of people in roommate relationships is significant and growing. And with the middle class shrinking and home ownership a distant dream for many young people, it's fair to wonder just how many roommates right now currently think they're in a short-term situation but will still be there together years later. What can the rise of roommates amid the challenges of a global pandemic teach us about our relationships, about living together and how we get along and negotiation and the future of the world's living spaces. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Kelly Maria Kordecki is a journalist based in New York who looked into roommates and the questions this pandemic raises for the walrus in a series called Living Rooms. Hello, Kelly. Hello, Jordan. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks, and uh, I hope you are as well. Why don't you start by telling us, because this is something that I uh, found really interesting in your article, is how are roommate living situations defined, like for purposes of of census and record keeping and such? Uh, well, a roommate situation is defined by um, basically living in a, in a non-nuclear household. So living with uh, people who aren't your dependents or spouses, typically people who aren't related to you. Although uh, the census... Uh, distinction between non-family roommates and relatives who like parents or an aunt and uncle or whatever, uh, that that's a little murkier. But yes, anybody who's not like your dependent or spouse or partner. And what do we know about, you know, what percentage of living arrangements they comprise? Um, and, you know, has that been changing? I would imagine, uh, just based on some of the stuff we're about to talk about, that that those numbers have been climbing. Yeah. So they they have been climbing Traditionally, the there, there's always been a significant proportion of the population that that lives with roommates, um, but that tends to be a transient figure. It's a it's a life phase, and what has really changed more than the the rate of roommate habitation is the uh, duration overall in which people spend their lives living with roommates and kind of what it means. So 
in in the past, in the recent past, roommates would usually be younger adults just out of school or just entering the workforce. And it was sort of the the housing situation for young people before they became real adults and bought property and started a family and embarked on the nuclear family for a number of reasons that is increasingly less often the case. People are getting married later or not at all. Uh, and the nature of the workforce is changing rapidly. There's increasing precariousness in the labor force and an an opportunity. There's the gigification of work. Casual gig-based jobs are on the rise as stable, salaried, guaranteed work opportunities decrease. And the pay for work uh, doesn't rise in pace with the cost of living or or in fact um, decreases. People are making less, working more. Meanwhile, inflation hasn't magically stopped and the cost of living hasn't magically (laughs) frozen. Uh, So for for all these reasons combined, um, it's just becoming the norm for more and more young and not quite so young people to be living with a bunch of other people to to save money and to figure out their lives. So this is something that was happening for a variety of factors uh, well before uh, we were hit with a global pandemic. Correct. Yes. So this is this is an ongoing trend and you know it's it's been up and down since really since the the 2008 recession but in particular, the the numbers that I refer to in the story are really from within the last five years, and and specifically uh, the last like four. In twenty sixteen, there were approximately five hundred eighty two thousand non census family households across Canada, so homes of uh, two or more people outside of a parent child or partner relationship, and um, a year later. In the U.S., census data reported a very slight increase over a, a almost 29% of roommate households in uh, 1995. Interestingly enough, it's it's an it's a trend that's kind of always been there in terms of the numbers. The major difference is what it means and who is living in these situations. I mean, one of the things that I found uh, really interesting about this story was that it challenged my own assumptions of who lives in those uh, roommate arrangements. You know, as soon as I read something or hear something about a roommate arrangement, I immediately, you know, flash back in my head to, you know, as, yeah, as you mentioned, a couple years out of school, you know, living like students, um, everybody's got their own room, pizza boxes, et cetera, et cetera. But that's you know, not the case for a number of, uh, of, and I was going to say young professionals, but middle-aged professionals now, I guess. Is this becoming, um, is the assumption changing, I guess, in the general populace? Or, or is it still, because you're somebody that's until very recently lived uh, with a roommate well into your career. Do you still see that assumption? Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting. We are kind of at a point of flux. There is still, I think, kind of a, a, an underlying assumption that 
know, once you reach a certain milestone in your career and uh, hit a certain financial benchmark and or partner with someone that will mark the permanent end of your roommate life. That largely is true. The exceptions to that pattern are, are becoming common enough that it, they aren't being read as an aberration, uh, particularly in cities with high costs of living and where people flock for jobs. Right. We're in a place where there's still the expectation that one day you'll graduate from having to live with roommates. And it's really a thing that people do by necessity more often than not. It's not like a, a lifestyle choice necessarily. But it's so kind of accepted as a, as a thing that happens and a thing that people do that it is, in, in my view, beginning to shift people's understandings of housing and space and um, the possibilities of, of doing things. And ways to uh, to perhaps even make these circumstantial housing situations work. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. And what has happened to these kind of relationships um, that are, you know, negotiated at the best of times, but uh, particularly in the pandemic? You wrote about uh, your roommate and making that choice at the beginning uh, of all this. And I guess there must have been some really tough calls for various roommates uh, around Canada and the United States. Yeah. Well, early on in the pandemic um, in New York City and in in other places as well, we were we were given a shelter in place order. The instruction at that time was l- quite literally to shelter in place. You stay in your household. You do not socialize with people who are not living in your household. There was so little that was understood about transmission and and just like the best public health protocol. So the initial shelter in place orders were quite strict. And so, yeah, I was in a position that many other people surely found themselves in as well, which is, okay, well, where am I going to shelter in place? If I can't go back and forth between two different houses and socialize between two different houses, then I have to kind of choose a a spot to stay and deal with that, live with that for an undetermined amount of time, could be weeks, could be months. I wound up staying in my in my apartment with my roommate instead of staying with my partner who lives very nearby. And yeah, when you're when you're living in close quarters with somebody who is not your family member, who you don't have kind of a shared understanding with that's baked in and uh, a built-in intimacy that's that's been uh, honed over a lifetime, 
or or at least a long time, you you realize that you need to learn how to do that in a very conscious and often fairly awkward way. Like what? Give me some examples. Uh, well, for instance, one thing that my roommate at the time and I needed to figure out was uh, what we were comfortable with in terms of the other person even leaving the apartment. <laughs> so at that time, New York City was the global epicenter of a global pandemic. So, it, it, you know, yeah. there was just this this feeling that that the virus was lurking everywhere and even uh, walking out the door was taking a risk. So we kind of worked out this arrangement where we very infrequently grocery shopped. My, I think my roommate grocery shopped maybe once every two weeks. I, I eventually got it down to like once every 10 days. And we did not go during the weekends, during busy hours. We only grocery shopped during off hours. Um, so as to avoid crowds and for getting any kind of exercise or, you know, right. what, once we were, once we were given the all clear to take a walk for fresh air as, as being a not irresponsible thing to do, um, then it became, okay, well, when, what time of day do we go out for a walk? <laughs> when, what, like when, when is the least dangerous time of day to, to go walk? We eventually kind of agreed to to go get our exercise during like extremely off hours. <laughs> like I would go take a walk around the park at like 10 or 11 p.m. Just to stay away from everyone. Right. Yeah. To to avoid the the pestilent hordes, as it were. I'm so interested in how that uh, affected your relationship, whether it made you closer, uh, more conscious of your differences, et cetera. Because we, we've covered on this show, and I said it in the intro, um, basically every aspect of the family relationship that this pandemic has brought out, whether it's you know kids worried about their parents or parents worried about children or couples driving each other crazy on lockdown. Um, and this is like a step removed from all of that, which must make it much more fraught in some ways. <laughs> yeah, you know, it I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was fraught. Um, it was it was really difficult. And and it was it was very awkward where, you know, a, a potential misstep could be literally life ruining, uh, life ending. Y you you gotta have like really tough conversations that are uncompromising. And, you know, that's hard for anybody to make but but in some respects it's, it's even more difficult when you're dealing with somebody who isn't necessarily a close friend or a partner or a person who's related to you you know one thing that i've been thinking about since then is that it sort of altered my understanding of of what it means to be to be mindful of of compatibility because I, I, I think that we don't necessarily think about shared expectations and boundaries and considerations that, that we demand out of the people that we share our space with that facilitate a healthy coexistence. I think that going through that experience was, while very challenging in many respects, it was also positive. I, I think I learned how to navigate a 
difficult situation and to negotiate boundaries um, in a way that I hadn't really ever had to learn to do before. It's a skill. It's something that people need to learn. We're we're not born knowing how to do this. Um, But it's also a really important skill to have. Well, that was going to be my last question about the big picture. And does this um, change what people look for in a roommate relationship now that, uh, you know, people are going to grow up with the possibility of, yes, you may be locked in a house together for eight months plus. I mean, in, you know, in marriage, we take uh, in sickness and in health for granted. And obviously, if it's family, it's family. But uh, for a lot of people, I think, at least prior to this, uh, finding a roommate had been more or less a financial proposition. You're hoping you don't even see them that much. You know, you're both out, you're both working. And and now there's just always going to be the knowledge that uh, a roommate could be much more than that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's hard for me to forecast what I think will happen in, in the greater scheme. But I can say that what I hope will happen is that it not only becomes more normalized to live in, in co-housing situations by choice rather than simply as a last resort that is the byproduct of uh, financial insecurity and uh, economic inequality. And also, I think that it would be a step in the right direction for for adults to choose to live with with a group of adults and to 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 take a more collective approach to the home and family. Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about this today. Thank you, Jordan. It's been a pleasure. Kelly Maria Kordaki, writing for The Walrus as part of the project called Living Rooms, which you can find at thewalrus.ca. That was The Big Story. If you'd like more, we're at thebigstorypodcast.ca. We're always in your podcast feed, whichever one you use, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Dogcatcher, Podfodder, doesn't matter. You can find us. Leave a rating, leave a review, and tell a friend. If you want to talk to us, we are on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Or we have an email like everyone else. It's the Big Story Podcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.